Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Social Value, a podcast where we explore what creating value for society means and the practical ways you can go about creating it. My name's Sarah and my guests work in different areas of social value across public, private and third sector organisations. From public sector procurement to ESG and sustainability, social enterprise and impact measurement. I'll be asking them about their work and what they've learned and they will be sharing their tips and experience to help us all make our organisations better. Today I'm talking to Heleth Kendrick, founder and chief executive of the B Corp certified social enterprise, Recruit for Spouses. Recruit for Spouses is a recruitment agency which provides businesses with access to an untapped talent pool that is full of highly skilled, flexible workers. It's also a social enterprise, which means it does that whilst at the same time helping the partners of serving military personnel overcome the personal barriers they face to employment. I'm a huge fan of the work that Recruit for Spouses do. The difference they make to people's lives is amazing, but they also provide incredible candidates for their clients so I can't wait for you to meet them. I'm a military spouse myself, my husband serves in the British Army and I know exactly what it's like not be able to work because of the barriers that military life puts in your way. I know how deeply and negatively that can affect you and what a difference companies who work with social enterprises like Recruit for Spouses can make. Firstly to their own businesses because they get access to loyal, hardworking, talented staff but also to the individuals involved. Recruit for Spouses has changed the lives of hundreds of people in my community. I can't wait to share this with you and I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them and explore how they might be able to help you fill skills gaps in your organisation. So Hella, thank you very much for joining us today. It's brilliant to have you here. Can you just start by telling us a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Recruit for Spouses is a social enterprise, a B Corp accredited, which helps and supports the wives and partners of our serving armed forces into employment. When you talk about helping and supporting the partners of serving personnel, how do you do that? So 75% of the wives, partners and husbands we have haven't worked for over five years. When I first started the business, I thought it would be a sort of simple, straightforward thing as to create this social business that was going to help them to find employment. But the challenges that I found were twofold. There was not only the confidence element and the social element of finding work, but also the challenges within the supply chains, procurement and companies to actually get them into employment. And what does Recruit for Spouses do? What's your business model? So the way we help spouses is that we have a career academy which helps and trains and supports them with their CVs, their LinkedIn, that sort of thing. We build their confidence. We have workshops. But on the other side of the business, we have the proper recruitment business, which is a temp agency, but also a recruitment agency. So we do perm and temp recruitment. So it's both sides. So you help them overcome the barriers to employment that they're experiencing and then you help put them into jobs. Yes, exactly. That's amazing. I have to say, full disclosure, I do know loads and loads of people that have been hugely helped by you, especially the Career Academy. So many people have done it and the coaching programme. So just in terms of barriers to employment, that's a term that gets used a lot and people often don't know really what it means. Is that something that you've come across? Absolutely. Every single day, Sarah. And I think it's something that we really... Funnily enough, we're seeing it more now in the last even just few weeks with all the talks of the economy changing People approach us initially because they can't find work. It's military spouses and they're really struggling to find employment. The reasons for them is, you know, societal issues with their frequent moves. They need a part-time employment. They need to have flexible employment. So we then need to engage a load of employers who are willing to work with us on finding part-time flexible work. As you can see, there's a twofold thing that's happening here. And actually, it's not just about doing the right thing or ticking a box. 
employers have to really engage with us to understand the challenges that our unique candidates face. So, as I said, it's, you know, moving every two years, 98% of them are women, but people come to say, right, we want more women, we want to increase women. And you're like, okay, then how are you going to do this? Oh, we'll just put you on the PSL the preferred supplier list. So that is our, essentially what happens is you get a big procurement company, a large organisation, and they'll put you on their preferred supplier list. So you are supplying them candidates. And then you fall into this little sort of hole of, are you admin? Are you what? But we're nothing specific. And I think it's something you once said to me is the only commonality we have as military spouses is that we're married to somebody who serves. That's the only commonality we have. And I think the challenge that we have is trying to articulate the quality of people that we have within our organisation to work with these bigger organisations that may be wanting three, four hundred people at a time. So it is really, really hard for a tiny little organisation like ours to fit into a large organisation. Is that because you don't fit the mould of the recruitment industry? We don't fit anyway, and that's why we became B Corp, because we could see the value that we were adding to the candidate, which is also our customer. And also what we found is it really attracts good talent. So a lot of the people that work for us now have approached us because we're B Corp, but also we knew that there was value to add to the supply chain, to these businesses. And we could see that by putting teams of our people in, that they were increasing their levels of productivity, for example. So we know that by nature of our lifestyle, we're adaptable, we're resilient, we're resourceful. However, how do you sell it into a business? So we put a team of five spouses into a large company and we measured their productivity and their productivity was increased by 78% within the first three months, just because we had that adaptable, that resilience. Amazing. You put five people into a team and yeah. they increased the productivity of the team by 78%. Yeah, and we measured that productivity. So the productivity in that particular account was really low at the time. And we then measured it from when it was finished. And it was phenomenal, the change. So much so that that one company then put all our military teams into another part of the company to do the same thing to sort out this particular issue. So that one company recognised the challenge that we faced. But actually, in order to get onto that procurement, that supply chain, was a huge it took 12 to 18 months yeah. to get on board so it was really challenging I think that's what you're talking about is the challenges that lots of social enterprises face when they're trying to work with large companies it's like a round peg in a square hole it's super super difficult to actually physically sell things to them because really? their systems and processes are just so insanely it complicated really it's the cost as well so you have to jump through all these hoops to get onto the PSL and then you're almost stagnant and unless you've yeah. got somebody that says right let's work with these people let's try and get these people in and then in the meantime we're still managing the internal challenges that our candidates have which are you know, frequent moves, loss of confidence, all of that. So there's definitely a two-way thing. So you really need to have that customer that's well engaged. It's all well to do having the CEO or the MD saying, hey, this is great. We need to be doing this. But you've got to have the team in place to really make it happen. Is that something that you would say to anybody who's listening, that if they are looking at using social enterprises or third sector suppliers, VCSEs is what we call them, in the supply chain, it's not just enough to say, here's our procurement department, go and talk to them. You need somebody internally who's going to champion that and make sure that that grease the wheels, if you like. We are only as good as the champions within these organisations. So we are across, I think, 25 large companies now, and that could be anything from BAE systems, 
Williams to Virgin, but they understand us and our brand and what we're trying to do. And they realize that it's more than just doing the right thing or ticking a box. They can see the value that this is going to bring to their business and to their supply chain. They really have to understand you, your brand, your voice, how you're portraying yourself. So for example, the whole social enterprise piece, we were finding that people would say, yeah, we need to work with a social enterprise or a charity, but actually to say B Corp, because we've had to really qualify that. And, you know, we've had to go through all the accreditation. It took three years. That really puts a sort of uh, line in the sand effectively as to our value and what we're bringing to the business. Yeah. And there can't be many social enterprises that are B Corp registered. There's 1600 here in the UK. I think there's only a small handful of that are recruiters. I don't want to go down the B Corp rabbit hole, but let's just ask this question now. Do you think it would be fair to say that some people think that B Corp is just another, you know, badge? It's just another tick in the box. And that is exactly why when it comes to social enterprise, we decided to go down that road. And it was because it's not just a tick box. Everything has to be, you know, scrupulously looked at. They look at your shareholding structure. They look at your stakeholders. They look at all of your policies. And then they look at if you're putting your policy. So we have 52 policies in place from anything from a paternity policy to a menopause policy to a moving house policy. But you've got to not just have them and just reel them off and put them in your file. You've got to demonstrate a time that you've actually used these policies. They look at, you know, your community, how you what you're doing for the local environment. And they mark you. They totally didn't know anything about the military community and they said to me well you're we are telling you that you are not a disadvantaged group so (gasps) we had to really be challenged around the fact that they didn't see us as a disadvantaged group we have to say we're disadvantaged by our environment so going back to your question about social enterprises I was waxing lyrical for so long and we are still a social enterprise but it's like this is a golden standard the slightly higher kind of accreditation mark that really puts a stamp on what we do and why we do it. Brilliant. So I know we talked a bit about the kinds of employment barriers that military spouses experience. How do you help them overcome those barriers? There's so many barriers that military spouses face, but I think at the beginning, 12 years ago, people just weren't recognising that. So, for example, we have to move every two years. We often have to move anywhere in the world. So you could be living in south of England one year, the next year living in north of Scotland, the next year in the Falklands. And then if you have children, ailing parents, there's a lot of pressures on a military family. So actually working, they need to have flexible working. So the, the first thing they say, I mean, back in the day when I first started, it was even the address was a problem. So as you know, we had to tackle that from a you know societal change really change that narrative with the MOD around you know a military spouse is able to work from home a military spouse can work from their military quarter so actually there's a lot of stuff that has happened but still the barriers are there the similar barriers and then you look at the confidence you know I can't go for that job you know that's far beyond my I'll just go for a job in Tesco's or I'll just go for a job here so they really subjugate their careers in order to just find a job so a lot of it is around societal change and changing that attitude within the community of military spouses as well and sort of improving their confidence 
everybody talks about mental health and mental well-being and actually we're starting to really sort of thread that through a lot of what we do now as well so we're working with a lot of psychologists and people presentations and how you present yourself so military spouses are still finding that when they do go into an interview situation people still do ask them the questions like oh so you you haven't worked for five years or oh you you've done a lot of jobs in the last seven years or there's a lot of those questions that they have to be confident in answering when they do answer those questions so just to flip that on its head I'm just thinking about what employers can do to remove barriers because some of these barriers I think are not just unique to military spouses are they what other kind of groups might experience some of those challenges many groups I mean there's we've noticed students a lot of students a lot of over 50s particularly culture people who come from a completely different culture we've been working with Afghan refugees and Ukrainian refugees I sit on a number of advisory boards around these challenges and I think it's really listening to what they need what do you need to make this easier for you it's just kind of opening your eyes and ears to a different approach really and really listening so for example we use the example with military spouses when we're training a lot of our coaches and mentors around if they don't turn up to a agreed teams meeting for example they may have had a call from their husband that they're moving in six weeks they may have a child that is sick and nobody else can pick that child up from school you know their husband may be on tour and they may just have grabbed that call just as they're supposed to go on to this team's call so it's kind of building up a case and building up the understanding for the employer so that they can not feel sorry for them or take pity, but actually empower them to say, actually, I know how I can help you. And just to educate them around our unique challenges, which I think any, dare I say, disadvantaged group would face, whether that be over 55s. So we did a presentation the other day to a group of alliance members that had LGBT that were from over 55s and also prisoners as well. And we were talking to them about culture and how that is so important to understand, to bring in these different people and language barriers as well, and how opening your eyes and ears and just having a, a person who really understands and listening. So it's almost having a people type person that can really understand and listen to the needs of people. And I think what's really interesting is that it's the why you do it. I mean, I imagine there are a lot of people who probably would listen to this who would think, well, hang on a minute, I've got a job and, you know, there are 10 people that could do this job. Why should I do all these things (laughs) to help this person? And it's turning on its head and saying, if you do all these things, then you can have this person in your workforce, right? One of the things that's kind of coming across from what you're talking about is, it's an untapped talent source, right? You know, if you can get people who can make you 78% more productive, you want them, right? What are the other kind of benefits that people see when they do these things? Yeah, exactly. Sorry, and, and you're absolutely right. And that is a really, really good point. Why should I do this? Why should I speak to you? But we looked on there, as you and I talked before we went online, this whole ESG thing, and everybody's talking about doing the right thing for social mobility. We always research their company before we have a we present to them. And they were saying that by 2030, they wanted to have 30% women within their workforce and they only have 3%. So we went back with this quote and said, you have to work with people like us, small little organisers, as much as we may be a, a stone in your shoe, but you have to learn to listen. If you want to hit those types of targets, you've got to listen to how you can open up your roles to these types of people. So I think a lot of the time they think, well, you know, you can't do what we're doing and it's, It's really hard to get in on, you know, 
be equal with them. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. But I think just something you said there. So you're talking about somebody who wants to go from 3% to 30%. I imagine that there are lots of companies out there who are trying to do a similar thing. I think if part of it's about understanding, well, why have you only got 3% at the moment? Like, what is it that's preventing women, for example, yeah. from working for you? And you know, some of it will be around perception. Maybe you're in a male-dominated industry and maybe there aren't many female role models. But I think it's more than that, isn't it? It's about the kinds of jobs, the fact that the reality of the situation is that the majority of the caring responsibilities for families fall on women. So I think it's also about the kinds of jobs that they are offering in terms of hours and flexibility. And that's something that I thought that COVID had changed. But recently, over the last few months, I have come to realise that it perhaps hasn't. I mean, you're at the forefront of that. But are there many flexible, family-friendly jobs out there? I'm so glad you're asking me these questions, Sarah, because it's like not enough people are asking these not difficult questions, but not enough people are being challenged around this. I agree with you and what you're saying around COVID, because I was hoping that COVID would have changed that from flexible working. But what we're seeing is that you're seeing women were doing the lion's share of the work. You know, you phone your friend and they'd be doing the, the homework, their job, the house, and husband would be upstairs on his computer doing his job. And I think yeah. that was what it was. Some people listening to this may completely disagree and there will be the families that have 50-50 each way, but that's not what we're seeing at the moment. So there is definitely... If there's anyone out there who's managed to get 50-50, can I please steal your husband? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, well, your husband's employer because they've probably got it right. (laughs) There will be employers out there and we would love to hear from them because I think these are the type of employers we need to engage with is really to recognise, you know, parenting is a 50-50 thing. That's where we need to find, as you and I know, the army is getting better, but it's not, you know, the cultural depths of the armed forces aren't always that way inclined, are they? No, but I think I just want to just kind of unpick a little bit more on that flexible working because I saw somebody had written a post in a group that I'm in and they'd said, you know, does anybody know any part time family friendly jobs that are skilled, you know, and not kind of selling stuff? And there was lots of chat and nobody could find one. And I thought, that's ridiculous. And I went and I looked and I even went and looked at a really large company that we work with a lot who had said to me, oh, no, no, we've got lots of flexible jobs. And if you search for part time, you can find part time. But if then you also add in the filter of remote homeworking and part time, that's where everything drops off. And I feel like if you want to remove some of the, you know, help provide employment opportunities for people with barriers, that for me would be the number one thing that you could do is to offer skilled, part-time, remote working jobs. With training and support. And I think this this is the thing is that they think that it's too much of a high cost. You know, we can't afford to have people work from home, but we've just demonstrated that we can do that. 20 hours a week is exactly what people are looking for, is that sort of sweet spot of, you know, being able to pick up the children at school, being able to drop them off. And this is what women want. I'm saying women, but this is what a lot of parents want. And they're losing such a huge workforce here from, you know, I know the government have done a lot towards the childcare, and that is a huge problem that we could talk a lot more around. But I do think absolutely part-time flexible are almost impossible to find. They're like hen's teeth. And actually, we are trying so hard to create that type 
type of work we did. We started to, after COVID, there was such a demand for a workforce that we were finding, you know, remote part-time jobs with banks in the defence sector and people really opened up to it and they've almost closed to it now. And they're looking at thinking, oh, we can't do this anymore. We can't do this. It's almost like people have dipped their toes in, thought, yeah, this is going to work. And then they've kind of come back out again. And I don't know what is changing it. Yeah, I was was going to ask you why, what you think it is. I think there's an age thing as well. You know, you see often in the financial services industry, you'll see headlines of, you know, CEO or chief executive demands, everybody goes back to the office. I definitely think as well, I was having this conversation with somebody, different age groups want different things. So people in the kind of 20 to 30 bracket, they actually really want to be in the office. It's damaging that to them not to be, and I completely can see that. And, you know, then people in the 30 to 45 bracket, or 50, whatever, with caring responsibilities, don't want to be, or prefer more of a flexible kind of approach. But just on that, so 20 hours a week is kind of like the sweet spot, you would say. So remote working, if somebody's listening to this, and they think, okay, I'd like to create some opportunities, you would say, look at whether your jobs can be reduced hours, so 20 hours a week, can they be remote working? What kind of training and support can you attach to them to help somebody that might not necessarily be able to do them and in return they're going to get what I mean my workforce as I'm sure yours is as well is part-time women that work from home and I've got such an invested workforce a workforce that goes over and beyond every single time and I think they just need to as I said earlier to open their eyes around what they can do and it's like you know being at work at eight o'clock in the morning and then leaving at sort of six it's just not going to work five days a week and even so when people say part-time that even if it's three days it can work but it's just trying to find a plan that they know is going to work for each individual and actually looking at each person's individual case is not necessarily a bad thing as well it's really working on an individual basis if you're trying to do a lot more procurement and you know sort of getting the right people in so there are lots of you know known labour shortages in the marketplace at the moment. Lots of industries who are struggling to recruit. One of them, for example, might be call centres, right? Call centres really struggle to recruit, but a lot of call centres are now remote. And I have a customer who operates a call centre. And I said, oh, have you got very many flexible part-time school hours jobs? And they said, you know, we tried that a few months ago and we got four people and it was absolutely brilliant. They said, they're absolutely amazing. They're the most invested, best workers we've got. And this was the HR manager was telling me this. And I said, oh, that's brilliant. We were looking at what social value offer we could create for the delivery of a particular contract. And I said, oh, could we create some more roles then? Could we make more of the roles on this contract like that? And she said, oh, no. (laughs) She said, the people higher up, I can't get them to agree to it. Do you see that a lot? Do you see that where the people at a certain level know what the solution is, but the people higher up don't? Totally agree with you. And this is the chance. And, and funny enough, I had a very similar conversation recently with somebody. They said, oh, we we looked at uh, flexible work roles and we did 20. We did a pilot of around 10 and it went terribly wrong. And I'm like, well, why? You know, one of the things that we do is that we train and we onboard and we we source, we make sure these people are really invested into the company that they're going to work for so they understand the culture. So that we, we recommend that they do a couple of days within the company, that they really get to understand the business, how it works, or they get to spend time with other people. But I think this particular company that I was talking to said, oh, we're not going to do that again. So they close the doors really quickly. And yes, there will be challenges along 
along the way that we have found there will be those things that don't work out. I think it's opening up when you do come up against a challenge. Don't just close the doors and say, this isn't going to work. This is just not going to work. Actually, what are the savings? How can you save and really monitor and measure those kind of key indicators at the beginning? Where are we at right now? Where are we at now? What can we do to train these people? We use coaching and mentoring a lot as well. So coaching, we think, is a really important integral part of the longevity of somebody's employment, particularly if they're remote working, so that they feel they're really part of a team. They feel that they've got their own goals, personal goals, as well as, you know, KPIs and all that sort of OKR stuff. But that there's a real team effort as well, that they're part of that team. Do you do the coaching and mentoring for people before you put them into yeah. positions or do you do it whilst they're yeah. in employment? So both at the moment. So I mentioned earlier that 75% of our spouses haven't worked for over five years. So there's a lot of confidence issues, imposter syndrome, all those wonderful things that everybody's talking about at the moment. So we coach people before they go into employment. They get six free sessions anyway, but they have to ask, you know, yes, I want this. We also offer it during employment as well, because we find that there's challenges that they find that when they ask if they haven't worked for a while, they've got to get into that sort of method of working. And I think a lot of employers miss out on that and they think once they're in a job they'll be fine well no they do need a bit of support and regular check-ins and how you're getting on is is this tech working for you is it not working for you a buddy system works really really well when onboarding from this kind of demographic so I think it's all about finding the right employer who's really going to want to see change within their supply chain and really make sure they want to have that as part of their offering Lots of really good tips in there because such a good point about the tech. I've just taken somebody on who's been out of work for about four or five years. Again, similar military spouse. <laughs> and the last time they were in the office was pre-COVID. So they've never done a meeting on Teams. So yeah. it's things like, you know, they don't know what SharePoint is or OneDrive. <laughs> and they've gone from being really technically, I used to work with them, so I know how technically competent they were, to yeah. a bit of a Luddite. And that can really affect your confidence. And yeah. you have to be able to say, look, don't worry about it. I'll show you how to do it. Doesn't matter. You know, you will get it. Yeah. And this person needs a bit longer to do things than they would have in the past because they're just, just trying to learn it. And I know that once they're up to speed, they'll be absolutely brilliant. But it's just that I don't think we really appreciate how much technology has, in the workplace has changed in the last yeah. three years. In the last few years, it's changed phenomenally, uh, hugely. I go back to culture. For example, some of the Fijians, they won't look into your eyes if you're higher above them because it seems disrespectful. So we found out working with all the Fijians that they were not getting through their interviews because they were not looking at, and they were switching off their camera. But we <gasps> had to really talk to them about, really? so to, to the employer about the culture shift. You can't just turn around to Fiji and say, just look at them in the eye because that's what you've got to do because that's not what they've been brought up to. That's not in their culture. So we had to educate the employer. Look, they will not be looking at the camera. They will not be looking at when they're talking to you, when you're asking them a direct question. It's really listening and understanding and listening to what, what they need. So that person is feels confident. And then again, as you say, it's all the tech is really, really important that they understand how it works, that they have somebody on their level, not so high up. How can businesses engage with recruit for staff? Is there somebody listening who wants to know how to access your candidates? They can go online, uh, recruitspouses.co.uk. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, and just find us on there or email us to inquiries at recruitspouses.co.uk. And who would be your perfect client? What would your ideal client look like? Um, we're looking at sort of SMEs, larger SMEs now. And our perfect client would be someone like Booper, I think. We'd love to get into somewhere like that or clients that really want to 
do a good job for their customers because we know that our teams are phenomenal and we know that our teams go in there and they manage so brilliantly people they're really good with people so anybody who's looking for admin support or part-time flexible work we'll be delighted to have a conversation and thank you Sarah for asking that question Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Social Value with me, Sarah Stone, and my guest, Helleth Kendrick. The show was produced and edited by Chris Keane. If you'd like any more information about any of the topics we discuss, please drop us an email, hello at samtala.co.uk, or reach out to us on LinkedIn.